Welcome to the IPR podcast. I am very excited to introduce the two interlocutors for this episode. Alex Barter, Professor of International Relations at Florida International University, and Richard Steigmangal, Professor of History at Kent State University. And they will recap the interview Alex did with Richard discussing fascism in history and IR. So, Alex, I see that you're writing about the global history of fascism. And for Richard, you wrote about transatlantic fascism and the modern instantiation of it. So what does it mean to study fascism from a global perspective for each of you? Uh, maybe, Alex, you can start. I'm sort of at the beginning of the next project after completing my book on, on global race war. Um, essentially, what I'm interested in are two aspects of the history of fascism. Um, one, let us say, intellectually, uh, in terms of how to think about the place and role, for example, of conspiracy theories um, that animated fascistic conceptualizations of the global uh, and global politics. Um, so the importance, for example, of you know, deeply infamous texts such as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which purports to uncover a Zionist conspiracy or Jewish conspiracies as sort of the true machinations of uh, uh, to undermine the coherence of the nation state, right? So there's a kind of, there's a really fascinating global imaginary at the heart of the, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, and of course, we see today the prevalence of con contemporary conspiracy theories with things like QAnon, um, for example, taking prominence as a critique of political elites more generally. Um, so how do we understand the internalization and legitimation of, of global conspiracy theories um, and the politics uh, that and how it affects the politics of, of the public, right? And how the public internalizes this. The second is history of political economic crises that sort of create the conditions of possibility for fascistic imaginaries um, to come into being, right? So conditions of economic crisis in the in the eighteen nineties uh, was obviously instrumental in in fomenting these sort of proto fascistic views by people like in in France Maurice Barres. Um, fear of immigrants, uh, particularly in his case coming from Italy, uh, fears of Jews and, and their purported nefarious influence on, in the public uh, and in politics. Um, and again, I think similarly today, right, with this, this set of uh, crises, globalization crises, conspiracy theories comes out of, of, of the, the, the consequences of the great financial crisis, all of which primes the public towards a more authoritarian or fascistic politics. So that's, that's part of what I'm, I'm focused on. Great, um, Richard? Um, for me, the question of global fascism is very much a historiographical debate as, as much as it is historical, by, by which I mean this. As a Germanist uh, looking at US uh, political history, I'm struck by a certain um, reification of isolationism among historians. So put it in other words, the ways in which American history reveals an isolationism, uh, especially in the interwar period, is replicated by the ways in which American historians themselves look at the period. So the use of fascism as a category of analysis has been very strongly resisted uh, among historians looking at the United States and the history of political extremism in the United States. So for me, um, the question of a global fascism is really part of a larger agenda to um, unpack notions of fascism's inherent Europeanness. So the ways in which 
for instance, uh, American observers, both historically and today, uh, will say that no, um, there can't be fascism in the United States because it's a European import. This kind of presumption that fascism can only ever be an import is, I think, uh, deeply misleading because it strips fascism of its comparative power, its analytical ability to show us how these movements arise um, on either side of the Atlantic, for that matter, even perhaps on either side of the Pacific, and uh, constitute a series of sociocultural, socioeconomic conditions that give rise to a particular type of right-wing extremism, which is populist, which speaks to a mass audience, which is anti-democratic, but still nonetheless concerned with the, the fate of the quote-unquote the people. So there are all sorts of ways in which when we look at fascism in a global perspective, the very point is to strip it of the presumption that it's inherently a European thing, such that to have it in a country outside of Europe is to perhaps then look at a fifth column of immigrants, right? So in American historiography, uh, fascism came because we had German-American immigrants. Fascism came because we had Italian-American immigrants. Uh, and I think this is deeply misleading. So for me, as an historian, uh, tackling American history as somebody trained in European history, uh, it's been a challenge. American historians do not like this idea. They will push back against the idea. They, you show them all the ways in which uh, a particular movement in the United States or a particular personality in American history would uh, proverbially check, uh, check all the boxes, and yet they just cannot bring themselves to use uh, the word fascism uh, to, to describe this, this person. It's a really weird sort of historiographical isolationism. This is interesting. And I wonder, um, for Alex, do you find a similar problem in the discipline of IR? Um, I do, and particularly on the on the subject of fascism, right, which is which has not received this the attention that I think it does need to receive in terms of thinking globally as a phenomenon, because I think oftentimes fascism is treated as as an effect of domestic factors. However, I think in in, in part of what I want to do in my own work is is to return to um, early twentieth century history and look at the conditions, the global conditions that precipitated this turn towards an authoritarian fascistic politics um, uh, out of the wreckage, as, as Aaron, for example, articulated it in The Origins of Totalitarianism, of, of the state system, right? The consequences of, of, of the pathologies intrinsic in, in the nation state system um, created sort of the conditions of possibility for, for fascism to emerge. Um, but I think part of it is, is that we need to move beyond thinking fascism and its link to the state, right? Um, and this is something that is, I think, ubiquitous in, in IR. Um, and I think here, uh, as, as Richard mentioned, his work is, is really interesting to me because of that, right? Because of looking at sort of the transnational factors that create the conditions or the global conditions for thinking about the proliferation of fascism in, in, in non-European settings. This leads us to another interesting aspect of Richard's work, which is religion, which is also something global or cannot be contained within one nation or region. Um, so Richard, can you tell us more about why is it important for you to study the religious aspect of fascism? For me as an historian, the question of religion is really about ideology. 
uh, particularly with the question of anti-Semitism, we've had for many um, decades a presumption that the Nazis in embracing a sort of uh, a genocidal answer to a centuries old uh, question of are the Jews part of Europe or not, are oftentimes presumed to have veered into atheism or at least secularism when um, coming up with Auschwitz as their so-called final solution. And what my own research, I believe, did was to unpack that assumption and not to argue, therefore, for some grand theory of continuity such that Auschwitz is to be discovered in the writings of Martin Luther somehow, but rather that religious motivations among fascist leaders um, were very much in the center of their ideological sort of package, if I can put it that way. But I think we need to go beyond a functionalist understanding of the efficacy of religion to state rule uh, by fascists, to explore the ideological composition of what fascism wants to do more than just gain power, right? So when the fascist comes to rule, what do they want their society to look like? What, how, how do they want to transform society? And when you explore this question, right? And that, so I guess this is a broader discussion than of religion and dictatorship. Uh, what you see is that fascism in the 20th century, ideologically speaking, was committed in the broadest possible sense to a larger struggle against what they saw as the secular dangers of modernity, not just liberalism, um, which of course uh, had its uh, heyday in the 19th century, but what fascists considered to be the bastard child of liberalism, and that was Marxism, right, which went from simply being anti-clerical to atheistic. The ways in which fascism accommodated itself uh, to Christianity, both institutionally and ideologically, I think are very compelling in this regard. Yeah, I mean, Richard raises, I think, fascinating point about the the looking at religion as as one as a, a crucial factor um, in in the ideology, in particular of Nazism. And I, actually, I have a question for Richard because this is something that I've been grappling with in my own work, particularly in the work on global race war, um, and the chapter that I write on on Nazism, which is that. Um, what I found was that a lot of the, the justifications, for example, after 1941 with the, the, you know, the war against the Soviet Union was oftentimes framed in religious terms, right? That, that the war was a kind of a war, a defensive war to protect uh, European civilization, but also European Christian civilization, right? So yeah. it was an attempt to, to demarcate um, European civilization in religious terms against Asiatic influence and against Judeo-Bolshevism. Uh, and I wonder if, 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 that's all, if you see that also as an accurate way of, of thinking about how, you know, uh, a Nazi imaginary begins to, to really reflect this sort of religious dimension that you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea of the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, right, as a as sort of a holy crusade, um, and the, the naming, the military operation, of course, was named Barbarossa, as people know, named after a Holy Roman Emperor who went on crusade right, in, the, in the Middle Ages. So the, the uh, pungency is, is self-evident. But um, I think it serves a couple, I mean, again, when you think of the, uh, the, this question in functional terms, it served as well, very importantly, to unite uh, a, a self-consciously Christian Europe um, under uh, the Nazi banner, right? So when you look at how it was that thousands of volunteers from Belgium, France, 
um, the uh, Slavic countries that had allied themselves with Germany against uh, uh, the Soviet Union, in spite of a history of pan-Slavism, we know, of course, that many Slavic countries, not least uh, Croatia um, and Slovakia, were uh, happy to send soldiers uh, to help fight in this in what they perceived to be a crusade. Even uh, the Spanish, uh, Franco, carefully avoiding World War II, right, staying neutral during that conflict, uh, yet providing the Germans with tens of thousands of soldiers in a volunteers legion called the, the Blue Legion, uh, who ended up fighting right on the uh, city uh, limits of Leningrad. Um, so this functionally served this idea of uh, Judeo-Bolshevism, right? The, the, the Bolshevik menace was also, for the Nazis at least, a Jewish menace. Uh, we know that some fascists, in fact, were less anti-Semitic uh, than others. Uh, Mussolini was not a uh, died in the wool anti-Semite, uh, Italian fascism had not had prior to 1938 a very strong uh, anti-Semitism at its core, yet this became, the, the, the rubric of Judeo-Bolshevism became a very useful rallying cry for a, trans, uh, a transnational fascism across Europe uh, in the defense of the Christian West. So um, in terms of it, Alex, I want to make sure I understand your question properly. Are you asking a question now about the contemporary, uh, the question of a, a possible rise of fascism again today, or is your is your comparative question slightly different? In fact, no, no. I was I was just wondering about that about the salience of of religious representations of of the war mm. against the Soviet Union, um, and the attempt actually to think about Europe as a whole, right? Right. Um, not just in terms of racial terms, right? Because that, that obviously yeah. that's there, but also yeah. in, in religious terms, right? That this is a right. war to unify Europe, to protect it against this sort of amorphous term of the Asiatic, which also has a very long history and sort of processes of racialization that are happening in, in the late 19th century all the way through 1945, right? I mean, that's the interesting question. How much does an emphasis on religion uh, when rethinking fascism in these ways then make us question uh, the prior uh, valence of, of race as a category of our analysis. I don't think it has to be either or. Uh, the ways in which religious tropes reinforced racial tropes in this period, uh, I think are very instructive. And so we don't really have a situation where uh, we, need to, we need to somehow suppose that the Nazis were quote unquote less racist uh, because of this emphasis on religion. It's in fact the case that their racialism was predicated quite heavily on uh, a religious understanding of Europe's ills and uh, their cure. Yeah, I was just saying this, this is really fascinating. And I think it also um, obviously has parallels with today, which is that to think about the vectors of fascism through religious identity, right? And, and it, it opens up thinking about particularly the American context, right, as you mentioned, um, but also what's happening in Russia, right, in terms of a, the nexus between a kind of revitalization of Russian orthodoxy with uh, authoritarianism in Russia, right? So, I mean, I think Richard's work is really fascinating in that regard in, in, in opening up religion as a, a, an essential category for thinking about this authoritarian turn that we're witnessing globally. I think this is a good place to pause. This episode touches upon important issues like global fascism, the imbrication of race and religion, and their contemporary resonances. So thank you so much, Richard and Alex, and I hope our audience can find some time to read your works.